important to talk about anxiety um, because it affects us all. And one of the uh, one of the ways that it affects us is um, it really it gets underneath things. I'm dealing right now with a shower in my house, and I think that water has gotten behind the shower, and therefore I need to like take care. I need to take some very radical steps to root out all the bad stuff that's behind the shower and get to the actual source of the problem. And I think that in our life as Christians, anxiety is like water getting behind our showers. Bear with me. When water gets behind a shower, it molds and mildew. It, you know, it, it provides the moisture for mold and mildew and other types of fungus and bacteria to just start to eat everything, the wood, the drywall, the, the floor. And if you don't radically attack it and kill it, it will absolutely destroy your, your health, your home, the room above it, below it, etc. And it just spreads kind of like a silent virus. I think anxiety is like that. Um, and I think it is important for us to examine our motives, the, the things that drive the way that we operate in life. It's, it's helpful and important to ex- examine those in such a way that we see if there is a problem. And then if there is a problem, what then is the remedy? And I, I want to talk mostly about how we kill anxiety. So uh, the, the five things we're going to look at today is, uh, first, we're going to talk about uh, Jesus' teaching on the mystery of treasuring. That is, uh, y- you know, you hear me talk about this a lot, that what we treasure is an indication of where our heart really is. And, and why does that work? How does that work? Jesus explains that, and we're going to look at that. We're also going to look at perspective. That is, what, what is the core thing that you feed on in life? Are you ignoring God's word? Are you ignoring God's provision? Or, and are you focusing too much on the negative uh, circumstances that you may be in? Or are you looking to his light and his truth? We're going to look at the two analogies that Jesus makes uh, or word pictures, the, the idea of, of considering birds and then considering flowers. Uh, that sounds, you know, if you're a manly man, birds and flowers, they don't sound that great. But Jesus was pretty much the most manly man ever. I think it's right to look at what, you know, some men think is foolishness or, or whatever and look and see what God has really intended for us to see there. And then finally, we're going to look at how do we trust Instead of fear, instead of anxiety, instead of worry, what is the cause for the death of those things? What is the root? Uh, what is the root issue, and how do we destroy it? So, uh, with that, Jesus begins this chapter or begins this passage, and this is in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. If you're a Christian, a believer, you've probably heard of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a series of teachings, or 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 one teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples on a mountain, and he's up on this mountain on the hillside, and these are what, what it, uh, most theologians consider to be Jesus's new commandments to his disciples. And so you've got Moses in the Old Testament going up to a mountain, he receives the law from God, and then he mediates it to the people. And in the same way, now God he himself is on this mountain, and he's prescribing a, uh, the the meaning or the understanding behind the law. 
And so everything that Jesus is teaching is not a new thing. It was always in the law, but the law was mostly about codification of cultural necessities and various commandments and religious observances that God had commanded Israel. And so when you see Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount talking about heart issues, we begin to see that God's law is not just about external things, whether we circumcise our children or or you know pay a tithe or, or whatever. It's really about inward heart motivation and what that does and how that affects everything. And so Jesus continues in this teaching and he starts to talk about treasure. Now you and I we we know about treasure. We you know if you think about treasure, you think of maybe a treasure chest and a pirate and he's hidden the treasure somewhere. And But what Jesus means by treasure isn't necessarily a treasure chest. Um, but what he means is those things that you treasure. And I'm using that word as a verb. You and I, we value things, okay? We treasure things. We place weight or, or valuation on various things in life. And Jesus is teaching in this passage to not lay up your treasure on earth, but rather put it in heaven. Now, you you know that you were born into this world naked, and you will die and take nothing with you. Um, what that means is you you can't take any material goods with you at the end of your life. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher, or most people think is Solomon, he, he's over and over again saying how vain and, and meaningless some of the things in life are. You know, you die, you work all your days and you build up wealth only to give it away as an inheritance to your children or someone else if you don't have any kids, and then you're dead. And you work and your labor becomes the possession of another. Life in a very real way is is quick. It's, it's uh, fragile. And so Jesus here is saying, don't set up your treasure on the earth. Do not value earthly possessions over and against the things which you can possess in heaven. So he teaches his disciples the way that the human heart works. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There is a, is a direct connection between what you value and what's in your heart. If you find yourself in your life spending time to an excess amount on Facebook, on Twitter, on other social media things like Instagram, or you are polishing your car for eight hours every Saturday, or you are working on building a huge group of friends in your life and you're just an extreme socialite, or you eat to the point of excess all the time, you may have an idol. You may be treasuring things that are earthly possessions and to the to the neglect of the thing which really satisfies. Now, what is the treasure in heaven? The treasure in heaven, specifically, is not just heavenly riches, that it's some other type of gold. The, the, the treasure which is in heaven is our Father who is in heaven. And that is the whole point of Jesus' teaching of this after teaching his disciples the Our Father. We call it the Our Father because that's the first two words. But the point of the Our Father is that He is our Father. It's that we are children, He is our Father, and we trust in Him. And so this is what we're talking about today. As children who are supposed to be the 
uh, have this relationship with the Father, all anxiety, all fear, all worry can be seen as two types of of in, uh, deficiencies, what I'll, I'm going to refer to later as an orphan spirit and a neglected spirit. And what I mean by that is that we, in some way, the, the relationship between our Father and us, we have, have messed it up somehow, and we've begun to trust in ourselves. And so the question then is, if we are supposed to treasure the Father who is in heaven, how does one go about doing this? And if you look at the context, you can see specifically that he is, he is referring to paying uh, the tithe, to giving to the poor, and giving to the synagogue. Uh, in the Old Covenant, there was a system of synagogues. In Jerusalem, there was a temple, and they didn't have a temple anywhere else in Israel other than Jerusalem. Um, and then there were all of these synagogues. Now, the synagogue was the place. It was the regional church building or synagogue building. And these were buildings probably about like ours in which the Israelites would go in their neighborhoods to, a, to the building on one day in the week. And they would hear teachings and they would uh, read psalms and sing psalms and things like this. And so when Jesus in this passage is talking about giving, he specifically talks about the Pharisees who are actually not laying up treasures in, in heaven, but they're actually laying up treasures on the earth. But they're not in material goods. They're in the material uh, praises of men, of just simple men. In Earlier in the chapter, the context in which Jesus is talking about laying up treasures on the earth, he says in, in verse 2, Matthew 6, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So there it's solidified. The father is the one who rewards. And where is the father? He's our father. What? who art in heaven. So Jesus is directly connecting the act of treasuring something with the Father and who is the true riches. And so the unrighteous man who gives this Pharisee, he boasts about it and he, you know, sounds a trumpet and says, look how much I gave. Now he isn't, by giving to God, he's not laying up treasures in heaven, so to speak, because he's doing it from a wrong motive. He's doing it to receive the praise of men. And, and Jesus says he has that reward. That's all he's got is just the praise of man. But Jesus goes on to say that the one who gives in secret is rewarded by the Father who is in heaven. Therefore, he is the one who's storing up treasures that are in heaven. And so Jesus is talking about this in the context of anxiety, because what we do with our money is a strong indicator, both of what we treasure, where our heart is, whether we're an idolater or a lover of God, and our general outlook on life. What is, are we anxious about things? Are we, are we worrying about things, etc.? Your money indicates what you treasure. And so the Father rewards us, and the Father rewards those of his children who display their trust of him. You see, when you grow up, if you have a, a, a dad, a mom, um, a guardian, as you're growing up, parents are supposed to teach you responsibility. My dad did this in a um, very good way. He, he taught me and said, basically, concerning taking out the trash, he told me that 
I'll know that you're a mature man when you can take out the trash without being reminded. And the reason why is because it shows responsibility. Not only that, it shows trust. I'm not just taking out the trash because my dad told me to. I'm taking out the trash because I'm doing his uh, will, and I know that he rewards those who who do their do as well. The idea of, of a parent is that they're raising the child in such a way that they punish bad behavior, they reward good behavior in in such a way as to form character. Because the way in which God has set up the world, the way that his kingdom works, is whatever you sow, you reap, and whatever you steward, you receive more of. It's amazing to me how people who are never busy, they never have any work to do, they don't have a job, they constantly complain about how they don't have a job or they don't have any, you know, any way to make any money, yet they never take the step of actually going and starting to do something. And then it also amazes me how I, I know some people who never stop having work. As in, they're just constantly busy because whatever they do, they finish, they do it well. And there's some sort of reputation that's earned there. But the principle underneath it, all of that, is whatever you have, to, to you who has, uh, whatever you have, more will be given. If you've got, you know, if you've got a lot of work, if you're a faithful person, you're going to receive more. If you are never faithful with things, you won't receive more. And so the father works in this relationship, not in a manipulative way, but he rewards those children who trust him. How does the father know that you trust him? By indicating, uh, by, by what you do, indicate, indicating that which you trust as the ultimate source of, of your life and your finances and you know, your provision. Now, this isn't, I'm not saying that you just give away all your money and don't work hard, but giving liberally as the father leads is one of the ways that you indicate your relationship to him as a son or daughter of God. And so his children who trust him, they, there's an indication of how they live. They hold on to their earthly possessions lightly. I used this phrase last week, but I thought it was important again. The things that you own, you don't own them in a very, you're not holding on to them. Okay? You're not, you're not saying, this is my car, this is my house, these are my clothes, this is who I am. Uh, again, I want to reference the movie Fight Club. You're not your khakis. So many Christians walk around and they think that the clothing that they wear is a big indicator of where they're at in life. It's not. If you've ever noticed, I wear this shirt all the time, mainly because I'm in the middle of moving and it happens to be one of the ones that's nicer and not wrinkled. But I wear this shirt all the time, mainly because I don't really feel the need to go out. I mean, there's no holes in it. It looks okay. I don't think that uh, it, it merits purchasing, you know, like 20 more shirts. I don't think it does. And I don't think it would help uh, if I started to place my trust in how I look visually. What, what do I look, you know, what are my clothing? But you are, you are not your material possessions. As a Christian, what you own is held to lightly. You steward, but you don't do it in a miserly way. What does that mean? Stewardship is the principle of taking care of the things that you've been entrusted with. God has all the money. He, in the Psalms, it says the cattle on a thousand uh, hills belong to the Lord. 
We have a, a strong theology in this church that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and to him alone be all the glory, honor, riches. Those are money words. And so everything in the earth belongs to the Lord and uh, to he freely dispenses those things. It, what does John the Baptist say? A man can receive nothing to uh, from a man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven. He's talking about spiritual revelation, but he's talking also about everything. Everything that you have is some way a, a grace gift from God. Now, so a steward takes those things that he knows uh, has been given to him by God or him or her, and, and he or she protects them in such a way as you don't just like let your car get run into you don't just leave the front door of your house open during a rainstorm. You protect and you steward and you keep in such a way that you don't have to spend money to repair it because of foolishness. You don't just you know, start a fire in your kitchen and experiment with how big of a flame can I get until my extinguisher won't work. You know, you're not foolish, so that's stewardship, but you're not a miser. How do you know you're a miser? One of the ways to indicate is if you're doing you know, the... Uh, the um, what's the name of the duck in Disney who's like Daffy? Not Donald Duck. In one of the in one of Disney's uh, scenes of of Donald the Duck character, he's doing this thing where he's diving in to these huge pools of co gold coins, and he's swimming through the coins. And then you see later in the show, he's stacking his coins. That is like the essence of miser of being a miser. A miser is someone who hoards their money. They hoard their material possessions. They never let people borrow. They never share. They never give. They never sell to give. And so a miser is the exact opposite of what we want to be as children of God. And so when God asks his children to give, the children who do so with liberality, with trust, without anxiety, demonstrate that they really are children of God they really have a father and they want to honor him. They want to be rewarded by him. And so Jesus teaches, therefore, that, that what we treasure is the indication of our heart's position either towards godliness or toward idolatry. Now, Jesus kind of in the middle of this talk about money, it, if you've ever read the Proverbs, it kind of reads like the Proverbs. You know, the Proverbs will be talking about you know, the, the foolish man, and then it talks about, like, adultery, and then it talks about, like, you know, protecting the city, and then it talks about being a good child, and all of these things. It, it seems almost as if Jesus starts talking about something else. He's talking about money, and then he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Jesus, what the heck are you talking about? I thought we were talking about finances. This was the, I thought this was the finance conference. This is the 10 steps to get a better godly income conference. And Jesus starts talking about your money, uh, your, your eyes rather. And, and it seems disconnected, but I think it's actually quite relevant. Jesus here is talking not about, uh, you know, necessarily like lust or pornography, things that we typically associate with sins of the eye. I think he's talking about your perspective in life. Now, I don't think he's not talking about that because he addresses that other places. But in the context, he's really talking about where you're looking. And I think that's going to be indicated uh, in another spot. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be bad. 
No one can serve two masters. Again, this is he's kind of doing a Solomon here. He's talking about eyes, and then he's switching to a mixed metaphor about servant, uh, about being a servant. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, it's clear there's kind of this contrast. The eye is the lamp to the body. If your eye is full of light, you'll be, you will be full of light. If your eye is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then he goes on to say, you can't serve two masters. If you serve one, you'll love that one and hate the other, or you'll you know, be in, in servitude towards the other and you'll despise the other. This, this contrast Jesus is making clear relates to money. At first, they kind of seem unconnected, but I think they're extremely relevant. He says that whatever you're focusing on, that is going to be the perspective that kind of fills all of your life. Remember that analogy that, that I said, anxiety is kind of like water that's gotten behind your shower. It, it gets under everything. It starts dripping into other rooms, and you see spots on the ceiling, and it's, you just, you have to fix the source of the problem, and it pervades everything. Likewise, what you're looking at what your eyes are doing fills your body, it fills your person with perspective. And so I think this is highlighted in the next section, as we'll see, by Jesus' use of the action verbs regarding sight. Okay, so just keep that in the back of your mind. But the perspective that we have in life is what fills and gives what you might call the impetus to everything else. If you're focused on the things that are negative, focused on the things that are problems, if you're just constantly looking at your to-do list and your I-need-to-do-these-things-to-measure-up-with-God list, then you're never going to be filled with the light of truth. You're just going to be filled with darkness. And so whatever you focus on, you actually become. So if you turn your eyes, however, to the light of the world and you see what he has done, then you will be filled with light. And Again, you know, I, I try to every week preach a gospel of redemption, and so we're, that's where we're going. We're going to what are we looking at? And Jesus wants to talk to us about what we're looking at. So if this is, again, all played out in the scene of money, if your eye is constantly towards gathering wealth and laying it up for yourself, you're going to be brought to ruin. You're going to be brought down, and at the end of your days, you will realize that you have wasted your life and you've spent it chasing material goods instead of the things which truly last. Uh, it helps, uh, you know, we've got a few older people in the church, but we don't have any really old people. And by really old people, I mean like 80 and up. Next time you're around somebody who's 80 and up, if you get a chance to be with them and in a respectful way, ask them if they have any wisdom for you. You know what they'll say? They won't ever tell you to work harder and to put in 50 to 60 to 70 hours at your job. They'll tell you, if they're a Christian, they'll tell you to go after the things which really matter. If they're a non-believer, they'll probably say, you know, spend more time with your family, read better books, stop watching TV. But no one will ever wish at the end of their days, man, I wish my 401k was better. It's just, it doesn't work like that. It's not going to happen. And so Jesus talking about eyes, he begins to give us this threefold framework for testing whether we are anxious. How do you know if you're sinning in this area of anxiety? Well, the first thing is testing whether you're concerned about the length of your life. Testing whether you're primarily focused on not just your nutrition and, and kind of eating healthy, but rather you're overly consumed 
with this idea of you've got to take the right vitamins, you've got to eat the best organic food, you've got to do this, that, and the other thing. You got a South Beach, you got a yo-yo diet, you got a high carb, low carb, paleo, whatever. Maybe you're in, in a little bit of anxiety there. And then finally, you know, clothing. So Jesus does this by saying, again, you know, I just mentioned eyes. Jesus now says to look at the birds. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious in your life. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. What are you focusing on? Are you focusing on the negative things in your life? Or are you looking at the, the nature which God has set up in such a way as to be visual sermons, which preach to us all the time? Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor they reap, nor they gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your lifespan? Jesus is saying, look at the birds of the air. Go outside, observe. Look at how they don't have a 401k. They don't uh, spend a lot of time worrying about their you know, curb appeal. But they are taken care of by God the Father. And he then goes on to say, are you not more valuable than they are? Having taught his disciples to pray to their father, Jesus now shows the foolishness of attitudes that are ignorant of their father. And this is what I was talking about. These two conflicting spirits, you might even call them demonic spirits, but they are, they are categorized by the words of, of orphans and those who are neglected childs. The orphan doesn't believe that he has a father. He's ignorant of his father. He's ignorant of that relationship. So he doesn't, he knows that his father won't be around to give him things. And the neglected child, maybe they know that they have a father, but they have been so broken over the years of neglect that they don't expect their father to respond with any sort of goodness or charity or, or provision. And so these are, these are two attitudes. These are two spirits. These are two ways of life that Christians can, can operate in. You, you're not convinced fully that you're a child of the Father, or you, maybe you're convinced of the, that you're a child of the Father, but you're not convinced of his goodness. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, are you not more valuable than a sparrow? You're made in the image of God, and you bear a special place in the universe, the way that God has set up all of the created order. Mankind was the pinnacle, especially females, were the pinnacle of God's creation. Over and over again, God was making things better and better. He made the universe and then the planets, the, the light to rule the day, the light to rule the night, the, the dry land from the water, the animals, the things that creep along the, the dirt, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and then it's getting better and better and more special all the time. And then he makes you the image of God. He places his image upon you. He forms you with his hands. He breathes his spirit into your nostrils and quickens you and gives you life. And yet you are concerned that you will not have enough to eat or drink or nice enough clothing to be socially, you know, normal or respectable. You're overly concerned about your material possessions, and you have forgotten that God the Father is the source of your life. If he really, you know, became, let's say some terrible hypothetical world could exist in which God, who isn't a God at all, actually be, turns into this evil guy. 
if God, you know, turned into an evil person, which that is completely impossible and, you know, obviously heresy, if anyone would assert that that could take place, um, your life, it wouldn't matter how much 401k you've got or how many, you know, times you've steam pressed your shirts or, or whatever. It wouldn't matter at all because God, the Father, is the source of all of the goodness in your life. A few weeks ago at uh, Friday Night Prayer, I read from Deuteronomy. At one point in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that God, you, you know, you're supposed to give freely lest you say in your heart, my strength and the work of my hands has gotten me this wealth, and you forget the Lord your God uh, who, who gave you the ability to create wealth. Even everything that you own, steward, have, have received, has been a free gift. Even if you've worked for it, because God gave you existence, he gave you breath in your body. So it all comes from him, and yet we, we neglect the Father and we think he's not good, and so we turn to our own devices. And yet all the time, God the Father is shouting over you, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased, and upon you my favor rests. That's what God is constantly proclaiming over you, and you would rather get a new shirt or a new car. Or I, And I'm not saying you can't buy new stuff. I'm just saying... Don't look at that as the source of your life and value. Jesus is saying, don't be anxious. Don't be consumed by the love of money. And so Jesus goes on and he says, okay, if I didn't get you with the birds, maybe I can get you with flowers. This is, uh, this is turning a little hallmarky for some of us. But, you know, I believe the best men in the earth are really gardeners. I wish I had more time to garden. If you look at Adam, he was a gardener. He was in charge of the Garden of Eden. He screwed up majorly. But what happens after the resurrection when Mary comes and sees Jesus? She thought he was a gardener. And what is Jesus doing? He is recreating the earth until everything is as it was in the beginning and better, completely fulfilled, and the garden city that comes down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city where God will dwell with man, it's going to be a garden. It's going to be a garden city. And so gardeners are awesome. So Jesus talks about flowers. He says, you know, if I didn't get you with birds, maybe you can be convinced with these flowers. And he, he tells them again to look at the flowers. And yet Jesus at the same time is telling us, you know, hey, your eyes have been anxious. They've been constantly checking up on your you know, bank account, and, and you're constantly focused on, you know, are you getting enough money? Are you getting enough clothing? Are, do you look cool enough? Are you wearing the right stuff so that everybody at school thinks you're awesome? Or are you wearing the nice power suit that is going to seal the deal? Jesus says it's foolishness, and worse than that, the actual anxiety, not necessarily the idolatry of the nice stuff, but the anxiety of the lack, that is not only foolishness, but it's also faithlessness. Matthew 6, 28 through 30, and why are you anxious about your clothing? Again, he says, consider. How do you consider? You look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Now, here's where the visuals really come into play. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Arrayed means dressed or presented. Now, <clears throat> if you don't remember from the Old Covenant, there was this experience where Solomon 
uh, because he was the son of David, David had set up the kingdom and had trained Solomon all of his days to rule Israel. And it was in the days of Solomon that, uh, the days of David and Solomon, that Israel had its largest uh, geopolitical empire, but they also had their most amazing economy. And for a few years, Israel was the world's wealthiest nation uh, in you know antiquity. And so at this point, there was tribute being brought from all the nations. They were bringing that tribute to the king of, of Israel, foreshadowing the, the end of the age where all the nations will recognize the worth and glory of Christ. But at this point, Solomon has, uh, you know, completely decorated the temple. He's honored God. He's put things in order. It actually says at one point that the shields of their army were covered. They were gilded, covered in gold. These shields, I mean, they had so much gold that they were using it on weapons. Now, if you know anything about gold, it's um, extremely brittle. And so to have gilded shields is an assertion of not only extreme power, but also extreme wealth. How is it extreme power? We know we're not going to be attacked in any serious way where these shields are ever going to be tarnished. The, I mean, it's, it's like having a desert eagle, like two desert eagles that are gold, just hanging out on your holsters. Uh, it's a, basically a sign, I've got tons of power, but I also have tons of money. It makes, it makes the rap ego game look weak. But seriously, but Jesus is saying, oh, so where I'm going with that is, at one point, Solomon is visited by the Queen of Sheba. If you remember anything about the ancient world, the Queen of Sheba was like, you know, the heiress to a huge empire. She, she, was, she was basically a symbol of all the power in Africa at the time. And she comes up to Israel and visits with Solomon, because this is what dignitaries and kings do. They, they honor each other with gifts. That's the way that you and I should operate in the church. We don't just give gifts at birthdays. We also give gifts over various points in our life. But, but that's, you know, another series on honor or something like that. But she comes to Solomon to visit with him, and she brings a bunch of gold and, um, and a bunch of stuff. But when she sees the way that Solomon has set up his court and the way that Solomon has set up the placements at the table, she then recognizes through the way that Solomon had made things nice, had taken attention and care to to put everything in order to show honor to the other dignitaries that were visiting. She says, now I know that the Lord is God in Israel. That's an amazing thing. Okay, she's, she's converted in, in one real way to recognize that Yahweh is really the true God and he is the God of Israel. And she sees that, it says she recognizes it when she saw the placemats at the table of Solomon's court. Now that's pretty intense. So, you know, we've just built up that mountain of extreme opulence, glory, etc. And Jesus says, the way that the Father sees things, the way that I see things, look at this lily. I tell you, in all of Solomon's glory and splendor, he was not even arrayed or dressed as good as a flower. Now, why is that? Well, one, you could say Jesus is being a naturalist. I don't think that's it. I think that the flowers are representative of God's original goodness and creation and they're a representative of how he causes life to come forth on the earth, both in the original creation and the continuing sustaining work of the Holy Spirit. 
and that pointing forward to one day where the earth will be rid of evil, all evil will be banished, and, and the kingdom will be here and present. <clears throat> but what Jesus is saying is that these lilies are a representation. The way that they, they are, they're a representation of the beauty of God. What does Paul say in, in the later chapters in the New Testament? He says to the young women in the church, do not be adorned externally with jewelry and braided hair, but wear an inward devotion and purity of Christ. That's your true beauty. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think he's saying that even though Solomon had more money and gold and wealth and beauty in one way, still these lilies, by their just simple purity, innocence, reliance on God, they are more beautiful than even Solomon. And so he basically says, you who bear the image of God, are you not more valuable than flowers? They get cut down. I'm going to mow my lawn sometimes this week, and I'm going to tear down a ton of these things. And then afterwards, you know, maybe I'll sweep them up into a dustbin. And Jesus is saying, you who are worrying about your clothing and the length of your life and what you're going to eat, are you not more valuable than flowers? Surely. In what way are they faithless? Are they faithless in this way that they haven't worked up enough faith? You know, sometimes you hear these gospel preachers, people who you can call, um, you know, believers in the faith message. Are they faithless? You know, these people that Jesus is calling faithless, are they faithless in the way that they haven't worked up enough faith to receive from God? I think that's exactly opposite of what Jesus is saying. He's saying they're faithless in this way, that they don't trust God. It's not that you need to build up on your own effort some amount of faith to then enable this now new spiritual highway exchange of goods. It's that you haven't been trusting God. It's, it's really an idolatry issue. They don't, they don't believe, they're not ultimately convinced in the goodness of God and his provision. And so we know that Jesus' teaching to not worry is not some performance-minded, legalistic, you-need-to-believe-more-believe-better-believe-harder kind of message. We know that it is just a message to trust both the Father and Him. And how do we know that? Well, He explains it at the end of the chapter. Matthew six thirty-three. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's sometimes confusing as a believer to see Paul explicitly refer to Jesus' work as the source of life, and yet when you look at Jesus' teachings, on the surface, sometimes they don't even mention the cross at all. But Jesus is saying to seek the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. So we don't obey Jesus' commands by trying to believe better, but rather it's a Trinitarian deliverance. We Our minds receive the teaching of Jesus, the words of the Son of God. We're renewed in our minds by the Holy Spirit of God to trust the provision that comes alone from the Father. And so this this deliverance that we're in, in need of comes through the way of teaching, the work of the Holy Spirit, to put our ultimate trust in the Father and His provision for our life. And not only does He teach us to seek God's kingdom, but He also teaches us to seek after His righteousness. And what is God's righteousness? Well, we're going to end with a a little reading from Paul in Romans. Romans 3, 21 through uh, 26. But now the righteousness of God. Okay, Jesus said, 
Seek after God's righteousness. Well, what is God's righteousness, Jesus? Paul explains, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made present apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned, all of mankind has sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The grace and redemption that is made available to you is a gift from a father who gives lavishly and doesn't hold out at all. Whom God put forward, that is Jesus, as a propitiation. Now that's a big word that just means at one point God was against sinners and Jesus was offered up as the payment for those penalties and now God has turned in favor towards human uh, towards humans a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or his extreme patience he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's pardon of you is not some trick. It is it is full, it is complete, and it is as solid as that 300-pound weighted ladder that I was referring to earlier. It's even more solid than that. It is something you can bank on. And so the root of anxiety, or the, the root of all the sin in our life, the root of our anxiety and fear, is not anxiety and fear but it is rather unbelief. And the ax which is laid to the root of that problem is nothing other than the cross of Christ. And that's what we come here to celebrate. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We do repent of the sin of unbelief. I ask you, God, that you would heal the wounds in our, in our emotions, our spirits, those things which we may have learned from our earthly fathers or, or learned from them not being around those things that give us a propensity to see you as a God who is distant, a God who is not near, nor a God who is concerned. God, I pray that you would heal those issues in our hearts and that you would make us those who hold on to our material wealth in a light way and that we would gladly give up property, money, to spread the gospel, to share with those who have less God, we pray that you would increase in us a spirit of liberality and giving and lavishness, that we would be like Solomon, that we would give, give huge gifts that are unmerited, that we would be displayers of grace. We pray that you would allow us to fund the various ministry activities that we seek to do. But Lord, above all of that, we ask that you would kill anxiety and worry and stress in our hearts by showing us Christ and Christ crucified. And that through that, we would know with absolute certainty that we are children of God and that we have a father who's in heaven and he is lavish and an awesome provider. We thank you for this wonderful message of hope. We do ask that you would cause us to walk it out this week and the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.